Um, turn to Titus chapter 1, and I know you guys just went through that in your groups, but I'm going to actually read through it one more time, uh, just the whole chapter. Titus uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, let's pray. Lord God, this is your word to your people. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself and you've revealed your will to us as your church. Lord, thank you for giving us your truth that is meant to conform us to Christ so that we can be saved from our sins and we can live for your glory. I thank you for the words that are inspired, that are authoritative, that are sufficient, that are unchanging and inerrant, Lord. Help us to receive your word tonight as the words of a loving father who desires his children to walk according to your truth. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, last time we gathered, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 4. And tonight we're going to be in verses 5 through 9. And from the first four verses we looked at last time, they're actually foundational to the rest of the letter. And we learned from those four verses that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the power and authority in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. God had saved him through the gospel, and God had called him into his service through the gospel. As a bondservant or slave of God, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was commissioned under divine command and authority to preach the word for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Following his introduction, the Apostle Paul turns to Titus, who we know is the recipient of this letter, who too had come to the same faith through the gospel. 
He reminds Titus of the power and grace of the gospel that was actively working in his life. And starting in verse verse 5, he exhorts Titus to the ministry to which he had been called as the pastor of the church in Crete. Left behind while the apostle continued on his way to Macedonia, his was the task of setting straight what had been started, but not yet been completed. Specifically, Titus was assigned to put what remained into order, beginning with the leadership of the church. Now, I would imagine that most of us would agree that leadership is important. You think of leadership in government from our nation's president all the way down to state and local officials. You think of leadership in our places of work from our department managers all the way up to the CEO of the company. You think of leadership in the home provided by fathers, mothers, and husbands. Leadership is no less a priority in the church. There is a clear need for direction, for order, and for an example to follow. The health and growth of any political, corporate, or religious institution is dependent on strong leadership. Now, when we consider the various places where leadership is found, the difference, though, comes in what authorizes, what orders, and what qualifies one for leadership. And just out of curiosity, in case any of you were hoping for a job promotion, I looked up what the job requirement is of a CEO of a typical Silicon Valley tech company. And listen to what sort of leadership qualities they look for. A bachelor's degree or master's degree in a relevant discipline or an MBA. Experience in a senior management position. Knowledge of profit and loss, balance sheet and cash flow management, and general finance and budgeting. Ability to build consensus and relationships among executives, partners, and the workforce. Understanding of human resources and personnel management. Experience with corporate governance. Proven negotiation skills. Ability to understand new issues quickly and make wise decisions. Ability to inspire confidence and create trust. Ability to work under pressure, plan personal workload effectively, and delegate. Experience, ability, skills, knowledge, understanding, education, and degrees. All of which are the work of man. But when you listen to that list, what's what's missing from it? Clearly, there is no requirement for moral character. It's why someone who has an extramarital affair with an employee can serve as the CEO of a company like Microsoft. It's why someone who's been divorced twice and has had a child out of wedlock can be elected as the president of the United States. It's also why a leader who is quote-unquote self-confident can get away with being arrogant, and why one who is greedy for gain can be praised for being 
financially ambitious and opportunistic. Now, none of that should surprise us considering the secular world in which we live. However, the profile of a spiritual leader whom God has called to lead his church is markedly different. The standards could not be more distinct. It's found here in verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1, as well as in 1 Timothy 3, which we studied last semester. At the end of the day, what qualifies one to serve as a leader in the household of God is not the work of man, but the work of God. It's based on the transforming power of the gospel in a man's life as he continually submits himself to the authority of Christ and his word. It's about spiritual giftedness, not natural abilities or skill. It's about godly character, not worldly experience or education. It's about an unwavering commitment to the word of God, the inspired, authoritative, inerrant word, not a reliance on human wisdom, knowledge, or understanding. As an under-shepherd of Christ, called to represent and exercise Christ's authority and leadership in the church, he must reflect the very character and commitment of the one under whom he serves. The gospel is to be the supreme authority and power in his life and ministry. Can I get my first slide? Here's the authorial intent of our passage. We'll go straight there. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus as he has been left to pastor in Crete. And it's the same truth and principle that applies in our contemporary context. The gospel is to order the leadership of the church. The gospel is to order the leadership of the church. Now, Titus was to put into order what remains in the church. And he was to begin by appointing qualified elders but not according to cultural tradition or human standards. Rather, as he has been instructed and directed by the Apostle Paul. Specifically, the church is to be led by men who are exemplary in Christ-like character through the power of the gospel and who hold firm the word of God as his ultimate authority. In other words, the gospel must be reflected in his character, and in his commitment. Now, before we look at these two areas of character and commitment in more detail, we ought to ask, why is setting up a biblically qualified leadership the first order of business? Why does the Apostle Paul address it at the very beginning of his letter to Titus? Can I get my next slide? Well, the context of Titus tells us, and Pastor Mark covered this a few weeks ago, in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, which immediately follows our passage, we see the urgency to establish godly leaders in light of false teachers who have crept into the church. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And we'll look at this section more closely next time we gather. But there is a need for spirit-filled men who can teach and handle the word of God to defend the gospel and the true doctrine of the church. Just as in Ephesus, where Timothy was exhorted to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, the gospel had similarly come under attack in the church in Crete. It came from those within the church. In the faith of the elect, and the knowledge of the truth was being threatened. It was thus necessary to appoint elders as overseers and stewards of Christ's church to guard the deposit of the gospel and to protect the household of God from false teachers. But the need to establish godly leaderships comes not only from the internal threat, but also from the external calling of the church. As we get to chapter 3 of Titus, we see that the church is called to be a gospel witness to the pagan world. It is the ultimate purpose of the church, as Pastor Hargrove reminded us during our anniversary service last month. But that cannot happen apart from the sanctifying work of the gospel in our lives as the church reflects the character of our Lord in its unity, love, and holiness. That's Titus chapter 2. Thus, spiritual leaders are needed to set an example of godliness for members to follow. Spiritual leaders are also needed to impart knowledge of the truth of God's word, so that by it, the church can grow up in every way into him who is the head. That is Christ. From beginning to end, it is the power and authority of the gospel which calls us to holy living and compels us to bring the truth of the gospel to those who are perishing. So the Apostle Paul is not simply telling Titus to appoint elders for the sake of setting up a hierarchical structure. He has the internal threat and the external calling of the church in mind. And it is into this context that the Apostle Paul exhorts Titus to appoint elders in every town, every town as he directed him. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. May I get my next slide? The character and reputation of one who is called to lead Christ's church is to be above reproach. This phrase is repeated twice for emphasis, here in verse 6 and again in verse 7. Rather than one of many requirements, it refers to the overall pattern of a man's life, such that we can think of the list of character qualifications that follows as modifying or describing what it means to be above reproach. Essentially, it means to be blameless and free from conspicuous sin. It does not mean that one is morally perfect or impeccable, 
Otherwise, none of us as sinners would qualify. Instead, it means that there is an absence of even a charge or accusation against the person. There is an absence of even a charge or accusation against the person. Now, when we hear what it means to be above reproach, who comes to your mind? Hopefully, it's Christ. Because he was above reproach in every way, even under the most severe circumstances. We learned this past Sunday from Matthew chapter 4 that immediately after his baptism, Christ was tempted in the wilderness by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And from the beginning of his life and ministry all the way to the end, Christ was above reproach. In fact, on the night that he was betrayed, when he was arrested and brought before the high priests and Pilate, the chief priests, elders, and scribes couldn't even come up with a single legitimate charge against him. So what did they do? They brought in false witnesses against him. And they couldn't even agree. And ironically, the charge that they formally accused him of, the charge of blasphemy for claiming to be deity, was actually not blasphemous, but absolutely true. For Christ is the beloved and eternal Son of God. Now, none of us in the room is the sinless Son of God. But if the promise of the gospel is that those in the church, having been saved from our sins, are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, then Christ-likeness, not perfection, must be the character and reputation of one who leads his church. He is to be a model of godliness. He is to be exemplary in character and sound teaching that sets a pattern for other believers to follow. Simply stated, to be above reproach is to be like Christ in every aspect of our lives. This is Christ's standard for leadership in his church, and we are not to lower it in any way. It must be true of elders. It must also be true of deacons, according to 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. Now, that's not to say that everyone else is off the hook. As if God expects elders and deacons to be above reproach, but it's okay for the rest of the congregation if they are not. Instead, the implication here is that it should be true of all believers, but it must be true of the leadership of the church. It should be true of all believers. It must be true of the leadership of the church. So whether you are a freshman at San Jose State or a mother of three kids, whether you are a discipleship group leader or someone who's applying to be a member of this church, you are called to adorn the gospel. While it is not the calling of every Christian to be an elder or a deacon, the gospel calls all believers, all believers, to grow in Christ, as it is the sanctifying power 
in the life of every true child of God whom he has saved and brought into his household. We see this clearly when we get to Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, where we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Men, if I can speak frankly to you, God has called each of us to gospel leadership. It is certainly not because we're better or that we're smarter than our sisters. Rather, it is because that is the role and responsibility that God has assigned to us as men, according to his divine will and authority, as revealed to us in his word. As husbands and fathers, we have been called to lead in our homes, in our marriages, and with our children. We have been called to lead in the church, particularly through prayer, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, 1 Timothy 2. Some, including Pastor Mark, your elders and discipleship leaders, serve in a more formal leadership position. But all of us, as men, have been called to gospel leadership. The question is, whose authority does your leadership reflect? Is Christ and his gospel what is ruling and abounding in your life as you lead in the home and in the local church? Are you the type of leader God expects you to be? The place to begin answering these questions is by examining your character and your commitment through the lens of his word. And with the time we have remaining, I want us to start by looking at the character qualities of a gospel leader listed here in verses 6 through 8. All of which, as we have said, are perfectly found in Christ. And we're going to save our second point, the gospel leader's commitment, for the next time we meet. Can I get my next slide? Interestingly, the Apostle Paul begins in verse 6 in the man's home. And he does the same in our parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3. Look there with me. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Leadership in the home is to be the testing ground and a prerequisite for leadership in the household of God. First, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. At first glance, it seems that the Apostle Paul is excluding those who are single, who are divorced or widowed from church leadership. Is he simply forbidding polygamy and requiring marriage to one woman? When you go back to the original language, the phrase husband of one wife is literally 
a one-woman man. It refers not to an individual's marital status, but to his character as one who is sexually pure, both inwardly and outwardly. All violations of sexual immorality are to be excluded, not just polygamy. To the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, which serves as a cross-reference for our passage, Christ uses a negative example that helps us understand what it means to be a one-woman man. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brothers, based on Christ's definition, adultery, and for that matter, all sexual sins, occurs where? In our hearts. It's not the physical act, but the intention of the heart that makes it sinful. Notice that Christ does not excuse sinful sexual desires as long as you do not act upon them. Single guys, contrary to what some of you might think, getting married will not solve your struggle with sexual purity. In fact, all you do is bring your heart of adultery into your future marriage. Married men, it is possible for us to be married to our wife and to commit adultery with multiple women in our hearts. You can set up every form of accountability under the sun. But if the gospel is not ruling your heart, you will be carried away and enticed by your own lust. And according to James 1 verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. As Puritan John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In the area of sexual purity, have you truly repented and submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ and to the will of God by abstaining from sexual immorality? Is the gospel the authority and power in your life as you strive for holiness and aim to be the one-woman man Christ calls you to be? This is God's expectation of every Christian man in his requirement of every Christian leader. We are to be like Christ, who though he was never married, was singularly devoted and faithful to his bride, the church, even when we were unfaithful to him. Continuing on in verse 6, not only must he be a one-woman man, but also in the home, his children are to be believers 
and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This one is also not as intuitive. How do you assess a man's character based on this particular qualification? Must all his children be saved, as the ESV and NASB translations suggest, in order for one to be qualified for gospel leadership in the church? Well, in the Greek, the word for believe, pistos, can also be translated faithful. As in children who are faithful, obedient, or submissive to their parents. And that's actually the way the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. Having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. So how do we determine which is the right meaning of pistos here? Well, as we have hopefully been learning through our exegesis, context is always key in the proper interpretation of any biblical passage. In the immediate context of our passage, pistos is qualified by the phrase, not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. It follows and describes what pistos means. Namely, that the reputation of his children is not one of indulgence or rebellion. Instead, they are faithful and submissive to parental authority. Also, if we look at our parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes that the overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Taken together, gospel leadership in the home is to be reflected not in the salvation of his children, but in their orderly conduct while they are still under his authority, his spiritual authority in the home. He is to exercise gospel leadership in the way he manages and shepherds his family in Christ-likeness. Again, this is God's expectation for every Christian father, not just the one who aspires to the office of overseer. Busyness with work, busyness with school, Busyness with ministry is not a valid excuse. It does not necessarily disqualify the godly man to whom God has not granted children. But if he has children, there must be a track record of faithfulness in shepherding his own household. And why must that be? Verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There it is again. Can I get the next slide? The Apostle Paul reiterates Christ's standard for leadership, above reproach. As he transitions from gospel leadership in the home to gospel leadership in the church, He is to function as an overseer and a steward of the household of God. It is not his church that he is called to lead, provide, protect, and care for. The church belongs to Christ, who is her Savior. Having no authority of his own, he is to exercise the authority that has been delegated to him by Christ, who is the head. Neglect or abuse of this authority will render divine 
judgment. And in verses 7 through 8, we are given a list of 11 additional character qualifications that reflect the authority and power of the gospel in his life. We read there, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, we're not going to be able to cover each of these in much detail with the remaining time we have. Otherwise, we'd be here all night, but let's just quickly go through these. First, a gospel leader must not be arrogant, for that is contrary to the gospel. Instead, we are to imitate the humility of Christ, who came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. John 6.38 Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied and humbled himself for the sake of sinners. Philippians 2 Like Christ, who did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, we must not be self-willed. Rather, our ambition as gospel leaders must be to do the will of the Father for the interest of others and for the glory of Christ. Our ambition as gospel leaders must be to do the will of the Father for the interest of others and for the glory of Christ. That's what it means to not be arrogant. Second, a gospel leader must not be quick-tempered. The Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome hot-headed, short-fused, or easily provoked. We are to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 We must be like Christ, who says, we know, did not revile in return when he was reviled. He uttered no threats, when he suffered, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The gospel leader must not be quick-tempered. Moreover, a gospel leader must not be a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. He's not to be ruled or controlled by sinful addictions, by reckless passions, or by a love of money. Rather, according to Ephesians 5.18, we are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be gentle and lowly in heart as Christ was. As gospel leaders, we are to pursue godliness with contentment as great gain, rather than desiring to be rich, 1 Timothy 6. Moving on to verse 8, a gospel leader must be hospitable. Literally, the word there is a lover of strangers. And like the rest, we see how this character qualification is rooted in the gospel. Ephesians 2.19 tells us that Christ set his love upon us, 
so that we Gentiles might no longer be strangers and aliens as we once were, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As gospel leaders, we are called to love others and show hospitality to strangers because God first loved us. Moreover, a gospel leader must be a lover of good, not a lover of evil. He must be self-controlled and upright, just and righteous in all his conduct, in accordance with the law of God. Finally, like Christ, the gospel leader must be holy and disciplined. We are to be wholly devoted to God, exercising restraint over our body, our desires, and our appetites. Men, we went through these qualifications rather quickly. But what we hopefully take away is that this is a lofty list that none of us can come close to achieving on our own. Our righteousness falls short of God's standard for leadership, which is Christ. But praise God that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. Not so that he might lower the standard of leadership in the church to our level of righteousness. No. He came so that he might elevate us to his standard for leadership through the power and authority of the gospel in our lives as he conforms us into his likeness. And I'll close with this. Can I get my last slide? The gospel is his divine blueprint for the church. It is how Christ builds and orders his church. It is the gospel that calls sinners to repentance and submission to the lordship of Christ. And as we saw tonight, it is the gospel that calls men whose character and commitment reflect the authority and power of Christ to lead in the home and in the church for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth. As we will learn in subsequent weeks, it is the gospel that grows the church in holiness, love, and unity, such that the church would look more like its Savior and less like the world. And it is the gospel made visible in the church, that compels us to take the good news of what God has done to save sinners through the vicarious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our homes, to our college campuses, to our places of work, and to the ends of the earth, so that by God's grace, others might behold the beauty of our Savior and become members of his household and participants of his grand plan of redemption. So church, will we be faithful to his gospel calling? And men, are we the gospel leaders Christ has called us to be?
Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by your word tonight. On the one hand, we are humbled because of your infinite wisdom, because this is your plan for the church. The gospel is your divine blueprint. And we are part of that amazing plan that was started eternity past, continued to eternity future. And we are part of that. We are participants. We are recipients of this amazing work of the gospel. We are humbled because none of us deserve it. At the same time, we are humbled because what you have called us to as a church, both the men and the women, is something that none of us can achieve on our own. None of us are adequate. None of us are sufficient. We are humbled. But we thank you that the gospel is the good news of what you have done, not what we have achieved. It is what promises to complete what you've started in each of our lives, to conform us to Christ so that we might reflect the power and authority of the gospel in our lives and ministry. Lord, thank you for this amazing calling. Thank you for your divine enablement. Thank you for calling each of the men here tonight to gospel leadership. It is a privilege. It is a responsibility. We do not want to take it lightly. But Lord, we beg and we ask and we appeal that you would do your work in us. Lord, you have given us everything we need. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your church. And you've given us Christ. The one we aim to please and the one you promised to conform us into, his image. So thank you, Lord. Would you reveal any areas in our lives that we need to repent of tonight? Whether it's the area of purity, whether it's our temper, whether it's our lack of self-control, whether it's how we're shepherding in our home, whatever those areas might be, Lord, reveal that to us so that by the power and authority of the gospel, we might repent and believe and allow you to work in and through us. Lord, we desire our church to be one that pleases you. So Lord, would you do your work in and through us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.